scripture passage we're going to be looking at this morning is Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. This is God's Word. Let's pray and ask that God would bless His Word. And I would ask again, uh, specifically, that you would ask for um, even a special amount of discerning and listening ability this morning um, as we are going to spend a lot of time unpacking this Scripture. Father, we, we do thank You for Your Word. And again, I believe most of us have simply assumed that we would hear a word from you this morning without preparing our hearts. But we know you're gracious and merciful. And so we ask for your forgiveness and we ask that you would speak in spite of our sin. Speak to us and help us to understand, Lord. Help us to grow our faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may have a seat. In our text today, we have traveled down from the Mount of Transfiguration and we are immediately accosted with the realities of our fallen world. And I have for the exposition a very simple outline. First, we'll see the problem. And second, we'll see Jesus' response to the problem. And then thirdly, we'll see the necessity of a growing faith. And that's where we'll spend the majority of our time unpacking that idea. So the problem, Jesus' response, and then the necessity of a growing faith. So first, the problem. We find this in verses 14 through 16. It says, when they came to the crowd. When it says they, it's referring to Jesus and the three disciples who had been with Him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Namely, Peter and James and John, His inner circle. They had been on the Mount of Transfiguration and it says they came to the crowd straight from that holy mountain. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 37 it says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain... So apparently the, the transfiguration took place probably throughout the night as Jesus often would pray through the night. He was praying, the transfiguration happens. Through the night they come down the next day 
And they came to a crowd and it says, A man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So here is the context of the problem specifically explained. Luke tells us that this is this man's only son. And his only son is suffering. Well, how is he suffering? Well, Matthew starts by giving us his physical afflictions first. And if you read the other synoptic evangelists, they go about it a different route. But Matthew gives us his physical afflictions first. First, he gives us the diagnosis. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. And the word there means that he has seizures. Or it might mean he acts like he's insane. And in this time period, this was often attributed to the cycles of the moon. We would call this the lunar cycle. And from this word, we get our term lunatic. This, this insanity that was attributed to the cycles of the moon, the lunar cycle. He was a lunatic. So that's the diagnosis. He is an epileptic, but then he gives us the symptoms. He suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire, often falls into the water. Mark records it and says he's, he's thrown down. He grinds his teeth. His, his body becomes rigid. Luke says that he cries out. Of course, these would probably be, probably be common symptoms for someone suffering by or under epileptic seizures. That's his physical suffering. But if we skip down quickly to verse 18, we read this. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. If you, if you have an ESV, you have the footnote. You see that the, the nouns are reversed there. It literally reads, Jesus rebuked it and the demon came out. So Matthew almost assumes that we understand that it's not just physical, it's spiritual. Mark says that the man came up and said he has a spirit that makes him mute. And Luke says, behold, a spirit seizes him. So the physical ailments that have taken hold of this young boy are the result of demonic oppression. This is important. The actual problem with this young boy is not physical. It's spiritual. But I do not believe that that is the main problem of the text. The story of the young man and the demonic oppression are uh, just setting the stage for what we read next. Because we read that the disciples were unable to heal him in verse 16. The man continues, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. This is a reference to the nine disciples who were left at the foot of the mountain or, or, or left out of the travel up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They could not heal him. They were not able. Now how would they know that unless they had tried to heal him but had failed? Now here's a question. Is it odd to you that the disciples were not able to cast out this demon. Should we be surprised? And, and I believe the answer is yes. We should be surprised. Now why is that? Well, we know that they had been given power to do this or authority. Mark 6, 7 says, 
That he, had, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So they had been given authority and power. In Matthew 10 and verse 8 we read, Jesus commanded them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So they had been not only given authority, but they had been sent out and charged to cast out demons. And then in Luke chapter 10, we read of the 72. It says, they returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now the 72 were non-apostolic disciples. They were just 72 other followers and they had had success in casting out demons. So after having been given authority and power from Jesus to heal the sick, raise the dead and cast out demons and having been sent out already to do these things and again more than likely after having some sort of success at all of these things, all of a sudden and this is important, all of a sudden, the disciples can't cast out this demon. Mark says, uses a reference or he quotes Jesus talking about this kind of demon. And I believe that this is the real problem of the text. And the rest of the pericope explains, I believe, helps us to see that this is the case. The real problem is that the disciples are unable to cast out this kind of demon. So we'll get to that in a minute. But first, we come to point number two, Jesus' response to this problem. <clears throat> in verses 17 and 18. Now even if we had never read Matthew chapter 17, <coughs> excuse me, even if we had never read Matthew chapter 17, if we just read chapters 1 through 16 and we came to this point and we read that a man came to Jesus with a young boy who had a, a boy a, a, a epilepsy and a demon, we would already be expecting Jesus to respond, how? Positively. Cast out the demon. We're just expecting it. And that's what we receive. We get that. We, our expectations are met. He responds actually in two ways with two types of rebuke. He rebukes all of those who are around, I believe, his hearers, anyone who is within earshot, and then he rebukes the demon. First, he rebukes his hearers with a, an accusatory description. He calls them a faithless and twisted generation. He describes this present generation, those who can hear him, as a generation who's lacking in faith and as being twisted or perverse or deviant. And then he asks these two rhetorical questions. And these questions sort of show us his weary heart for the people. And it's very interesting when we begin to understand how, how Jesus, how his spirit and his emotional life began, began to be wrapped up in the, the people that he was involved with. He says, how long am I to be with you? Remember, Jesus is not from here. And we know that He's not going to stay here. We know that He's not a part of this race. He came into humanity. He's come to seek and to save the lost. And so when He sees this situation and He asks, How long am I to be with you? We, we, we sense the weight and the burden and the pressure that He is beginning to feel as He, as he longs to just be out of it. It's beginning to weigh upon Him as not only fully human but as fully God having entered into our fallen 
humanity? How long am I to be with you? And then how long am I to bear with you? That is, how long am I to endure? How long am I to tolerate? How long am I to put up with your nonsensical, illogical, irrational unbelief and lack of faith? He'd been with them. And he'd, he'd done this over and over and over. And he had taught his disciples. He had given them authority. He had charged them. And Jesus, he, he's, he's, he's tired of, of the constant bearing and tolerating with their unbelief. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on himself the form of a servant so that he might come and put up with our wretchedness. And so we can feel when he asks these questions, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? As he sees Calvary on the horizon, he's beginning to feel the weight and the pressure of fallen humanity. We can see his despondency as he, he's reminded yet again of the present circumstances into which he's been sent. The Lord of glory seems almost pessimistic as he sees the situation around him, as he considers the depraved and unbelieving humanity that he has to deal with. But he doesn't stop there because he then rebukes the demon. And this is what we sort of expected. Bring him here to me, he says. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. So Jesus responds negatively first with these, this rebuke to his listeners and then he responds positively by casting out the demon. That's familiar. We expect that. We expect the demon to be cast out and that's why I don't believe that this is the point of the story. We've seen this type of thing over and over. The point is his negative response. The point here is his rebuke of his hearers, which brings us to the focal point of this story and the lesson we need to learn from it, and that is the necessity of a growing faith. In verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? Again, they had done it before. They had received authority. They had received the charge. They had been sent out. It's strange to them that they were not able to cast out the demon. They had gotten used to casting out demons. And so they can't understand why they can no longer do it. Jesus answers, because of your little faith. That is, your faith, here's the reason, your faith is lacking in some area. Now, they did have some kind of faith or they wouldn't even have tried to cast out the demon. But their faith is deficient somehow. So the question we ask is, well, how is their faith deficient? Why is it little? Well, he goes on to explain. Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, remember that phrase, he makes a statement of truth, and then he uses that truly statement to sort of amplify and intensify the teaching. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, now let's stop there. I have interpreted this wrongly in the past, and many do, because I did not consider what Jesus is saying in, in, in its context. Jesus is not saying, if you would just have just a little bit of faith, think about it. Why can we not cast out this demon? Because of your little faith. If you would just have a little bit of faith, 
you would say to this mountain, move from here and it'll move. It doesn't make any sense. That's not what he's saying. What does he mean by, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed? Well, what's the other reference we know concerning a grain of mustard seed? We studied it in the parables. Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Same phrase, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. And we usually stop there. It's tiny, it's small. But he goes on, But when it has grown, it is larger than all of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Remember, the point of that parable was not that the kingdom is small, but that it starts off small and it grows like mustard. So the point here is about mustard is not just that it's small, but that it starts small and it grows into something very large. What Jesus is saying about their faith is the deficiency is a deficiency of quality, not quantity. Now why is that important? Because if you misunderstand that point, you, you go off into the error of putting your faith in your faith. You say things like, well, well, if I could just have a little bit of faith, if I could just have faith like a mustard seed, we'll hold out a mustard seed and say, look how small it is. If I could just have that much faith, it's so small. Well, the reason such and such is not happening, even though I believe or I want it to happen, is just because I don't have even the tiniest bit of faith. I mean, I thought I had faith, I thought I believed, but it, it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. And so I guess I just don't have enough faith. And we put our faith in our faith. But the point Jesus is making is not that they don't have just the smallest little bit of faith. The point is that their faith is not growing like a mustard seed into a tree. Of course it starts small, but is it growing? So he says, because of your little faith... For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed and, and read there, growing, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. We'll stop there. Again, we have a problematic or, or a possibly problematic phrase. What is Jesus not saying? He's not saying that anybody with just the smallest little bit of faith can look at a mountain and say, mountain, move and it'll move. He's not saying that. Jesus is saying that someone with this, or anyone with this grain to tree, growing faith, will be able to make mountains move. That's what he's saying. Now is he talking about literal mountains moving? No. Now, How do I know that? Because nobody's ever done it. When we think of mountains, and this is um, just... A Jewish phrase that's recorded elsewhere. Think about a mountain. What is a mountain? A mountain is a very huge thing that's made out of earth. What is earth? Earth is the, the, the largest, most solid, immovable thing that we can imagine. That's what's scary about an earthquake is that the one thing that should never move begins to move. And mountains are made of earth. So a mountain moving is typical. It is a picture of the seemingly immovable, the seemingly impossible task. So Jesus is saying that if you have faith of this 
living, growing kind, you will be able to see these seemingly immovable, seemingly impossible happen. That's why he goes on to say, and nothing will be impossible for you. Again, our third problematic phrase. What does he not mean? He does not use the term nothing in its fully exhaustive sense. Jesus is not saying, listen, disciples, if you would have just the smallest little teeny tiny bit of faith, you could make a rock so big God couldn't lift it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, we'll relate it to another phrase. In Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is Paul saying? He's not saying, you know, if I just set my mind to it, and I set some goals for myself, and I really work hard, and I practice every day, I can achieve my dreams in Christ. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul had just listed a plethora of really, really hard things and really, really great blessings, and then he says, in Christ, I've learned how to deal with all of this. I can do all of these things. This, this all things is limited by its context. In the similar way, when Jesus says nothing will be impossible, the word nothing is limited by the context. That is nothing with regard to these types of seemingly impossible situations. So, the focus of the story and what Jesus is teaching is not what you would be able to do if you just had enough faith. The focus is what is causing hindrances in areas and activities that have become or should be normative and yet they're not. You should be growing. There should be regular things happening, but it's not taking place. In other words, the question is, what can I now do with my faith powers? Now that I'm a believer and I've got the Holy Spirit inside of me, what can I move? What can I do with my faith powers? The question is, why is there a cessation of God's power in this area of my life or this, this situation when historically I've not had an issue here? You see, the disciples have been presented with a spiritual conflict which would have and should have normally been handled with ease because they've been given authority and power. They've been charged and commanded to cast out demons. But because of their deficient faith, their faith that is not growing, they are rendered ineffective. And again, the deficiency is a deficiency in quality, not quantity. It's not that they don't have any faith. It's that they don't have a faith that's growing. They have a stagnant faith. There's no progress. It started off like a mustard seed, and it's still a mustard seed. You could just imagine the disciples saying, In the name of Jesus, come out! In the name of Jesus, come out! Well, we just did this yesterday. Nathaniel, you try it. In the name of Jesus, come out! Bartholomew, you give it a try. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, come out! And it's not working. Why? Well, because this is a different kind. It takes more than what you did yesterday. And this is the problem. It's a deficiency. It's not growing. 
And we can apply this principle to ourselves. When it comes to spiritual warfare, and this is, this is what this is, spiritual warfare, or we might say spiritual conflict, spiritual contention, difficulties of a spiritual nature, I would throw in there pretty much any decision or question or challenge that you have that is going to affect you spiritually, the minute that we begin to assume that we already have what it takes to win this particular battle or that particular battle or answer this question or that question. We just assume, oh, I've done this, I've got this, this is easy. The minute we begin to assume that, we've already lost. Because we think that what worked yesterday is going to work today. Now, where did I get that from this idea of stagnant faith? Well, the focus there is on this idea of we, us, our, me, and our assumptions. When I think of we and our working, our approaching these situations, I think of approaching them from a purely, well, first, from a purely worldly standpoint. Say we come into a situation, a question, a spiritual battle, a challenge, you name it. We've, we've all got them every day of the week. We have questions and concerns. Should I do this or should I do that? Should I go there or should I go there? Should I buy this or should I buy that? I have this problem or that. Whatever the challenge may be, I don't know what it is. We can approach it from a purely worldly standpoint and say, well, I've got this on my own. I don't need any help. I can do it. I can do this. If I set my mind to it, I can do it. And we don't ask for any outside help at all. It's just me. Or we just go about it in our own strength, using our own natural faculties. If I set my mind to it, and I really, really just try really hard, I can do this. I just have to try harder, and I can make this happen. Perhaps it's a sin issue that you're battling. If I try harder, I can do this. Or maybe we use our own worldly methods like, well, I'm a type A person and so I'm going to go with this method rather than that method because it works for me because of who I am. Or we might say, well, well, I read a blog on psychology and it said for me to do this. Or I read a blog that said if I'll practice yoga or if I'll jog or if I'll just keep my mind busy, then this outcome will happen. Or I can, I can defeat this doing all these things. These are just purely worldly. They have nothing to do with God at all. Or then there's the Christian-influenced position. I believe this is what the disciples what their problem was. This would be mechanical religious exercises like using a special code or an equation and plugging in our problem, turning this knob, pulling this lever, twisting this, pushing this button, and then our positive benefits will come out. What do we say? When you have an issue, what do we do? Well, read your Bible and pray. Go to church, do family worship. You doing that? Well, I don't see what the problem is. I can't tell you any more than that. Read your Bible and pray. Go to church and do family worship. And we think of those things as an equation. So we have a problem. Well, I need to read my Bible. And what that means is, well, I'll read the chapter that I had planned to read. I read the chapter. I realize it doesn't have anything to do with my issue, my problem, my question. And so I'll Google and see what desiring God has to say about it. And then I'll say, well, I'll just pray about it. And then I pray for about... 11 seconds, 
God, just help me in this issue. Amen. And then, I, then I'm done. So there I've read my Bible and I've prayed. And then I go to church regularly. I've been, a, I've been in church every Sunday. And I've done family worship for two weeks in a row. So I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying. And I'm going to church and I'm doing family worship two weeks in a row. I'm directly in the will of God now, completely aligned with God. And so whatever... I come to whatever conclusion I come to, however I decide to fight this spiritual battle, it should bring me the right conclusion. It should work here. These weapons won't work because they're from us. They're just us doing the same old thing and they require no faith. Reading your Bible, just like you've always done, requires no faith. Or praying, just like you've always done, requires no faith. These are from us and we can't win on our own power because the power doesn't come from us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So here's sort of the negative point that I'm trying to make. We're not warring according to the flesh. Our weapons are not of the flesh. They must have divine power. And I'm not divine, therefore the power has to come from outside of me. must come from another. Or positively, I might say, Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Again, Notice what it's saying. Trust in the Lord. Do not trust in yourself. Do not think yourself to be wise. You see the picture here. We don't wage war against the flesh. The power is not in you. Trust in the Lord. Look to the Lord. Don't be wise in yourself. There's a contrast here in the way that we do spiritual battle. It's self versus not self. My power versus not my power. And that is the driving force behind what we call faith. Looking away from self. This is why we can say that faith is not a work. People say, what must I do to be saved? Believe. Well, I thought you said I'm not saved by works. You're right. So what do I need to do to be saved? Believe. Is that not a work? No. Faith is the very essence of non-work. It's the very essence of looking away from your works. It's non-self-reliance. Faith is at its essence trusting in something else. So we look away from ourselves, that's faith. But the point of this passage is not just looking away from ourselves, that's faith, that's just seed stage faith. We've got a mustard seed here. But we must grow in our looking away from our Selves. And this is the point I'm trying to, to get to. In the life of every true follower of Jesus Christ, there should be healthy, observable digression away from self-reliance and towards faith in God. You should be able to see it. I used to rely on myself but now I don't that much anymore. And I used to not really rely on God that much anymore, but I do more. It's observable. It grows. Now, by way of application, I, wanna, I want us to ask two questions and answer them. The first is, 
How would you know if your faith is little? Because we're not casting out demons. How would you know if your faith is little? If I asked you to raise your hand and your faith is little, how would you know? And secondly, what can we do to foster and exercise a growing faith? Before we answer those questions, I want to consider a connection that's made in the Scriptures. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Growing faith. Mark records Jesus as saying, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer. Some manuscripts add prayer and fasting. These are not exclusive. There's little faith that needs to be growing faith that is also coupled with prayer and more than likely prayer and fasting. So what's the connection between a growing faith and prayer or prayer and fasting? And I'm just going to say prayer and fasting because I believe they go together. A mustard seed starts small and it grows. Our faith starts small and it grows. Mustard seeds need what? Water and sunlight to grow. Our faith needs nourishment to grow. What is nourishment to faith? Nourishment to our faith is exercising it regularly, using it, and also seeing the fruit of it. When we can exercise our faith and then see the outcome of our faith, that, that in turn strengthens our faith to, to use it more. And the point is that our faith is exercised more and stretched more through increasingly more difficult spiritual conflicts. That's why the phrase is important, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer and fasting. This kind. This is a next level demon, guys. And you have not stretched yourself, you've not worked out your faith enough to cast this kind out. You've not prayed enough. And then we come to just the details of prayer and fasting. Prayer is, is talking to God, literally. When you pray, you talk to God. You deepen that relationship with God through, here's an important word, monologue. When you pray, God does not talk back. You talk to God. And when you read His Word, He speaks back. You deepen that relationship, but prayer is also getting in the habit of bringing to Him all of your needs and all of your requests. Getting used to running to Him first with your burdens. That's prayer, talking to God and being in that habit. And then fasting, it's obvious, going without food. It is probably the most intense form of self-denial where you... Put your physical necessities, your physical desires of food, you, you lay them aside for the purpose of exercising your complete and total dependence upon God. That's faith. You don't eat so that you can have faith and you pray while you're exercising your faith. You see how they go together, prayer and fasting. So we must have mustard seed faith that grows. We could say seed to tree faith observable growth, and we must exercise prayer and fasting. Now what's the connection 
I believe the reason that Jesus would put these two things together is because prayer and fasting are the two best ways to expand, to grow, to exercise your faith, to make it grow. Now we do not believe that the Bible contradicts itself. We must assume that in the actual events of this story, Jesus said both, because of your little faith, if you have the faith like a grain of mustard seed, and this kind comes out only by prayer and fasting. He said both of those things in this story. Mark records one, Matthew records the other. He put them together when he said them originally. So, back to our questions. How do I know? I know this is, this is a lot and it's confusing. But back to our questions, I think this is where the application is going to come full circle. How do I know if my faith is little? Some questions you can ask yourself. How much time do you spend in prayer? How much time do you spend in prayer? Not, now I lay me down to sleep. Not, give us this day our daily bread. How much time do you set aside? Honey, I can't talk right now. Kids, I'm going away right now. It's my prayer time. Prayer shows you believe that you need God. And if you can only squeeze... And I'm not saying that there, there is no place for those Nehemiah-type prayers where you simply you know, pray a really quick prayer as you go into a situation or you constantly carry out a daily attitude of prayer throughout the day as you're working. But I'm saying if you can't even set aside time to talk to God then what makes you think that you really feel like you need Him? How much time do you spend in prayer? Because prayer shows you believe you need God. Another question you might ask, how long in days, weeks, months, or years do you spend praying for something in particular? Say you get a lost friend or family member, someone who's sick, someone who's suffering, a need that you have. How long will you commit yourself to praying for it? Because if you're going to pray one time and give it up, that shows that you probably really don't believe in God's power to answer prayer. Importunity, and we learned this from the, the story of the import, importunate widow, importunity shows that you believe God answers prayers. And so if you can't continue on and pray the same prayer over, and over and over and over for days, weeks, months, even years until you see an answer from God, then why would you think you actually believe God answers prayers? So how long do you spend praying for something in particular? Here's a good one. When was the last time that you fasted? Jesus said when the bridegroom is present... The friends of the bridegroom don't need to fast, but when the bridegroom is gone, there will be a need for fasting. When was the last time you fasted? Now, I'm not saying you fast on every little thing. You know, there's, my, my bank account's running low. I need to fast. I'm not saying that. I believe that fasting is for very important and very um, severe situations. But when's the last time you fasted? I'm sure we've all come across situations that we would consider severe. We've probably texted or called people, please pray, but did you fast? Fasting shows you trust God with your life 
And fasting shows that you're willing to go to extreme measures to hear from God. I had a friend who's not much older than me. His wife left him. And he came to me, oh, I've just been praying, I'm just worried he was distraught. And I said, well, maybe you should consider fasting. If you want to get a group of men together to set aside a time for a corporate fast, let me know I'm in. Never heard from him. You know what I concluded? You don't care. If you're not willing to give up your food for your wife, you don't care. So when was the last time you fasted? Other question, how do you handle God's commands? Obeying God in this world is difficult. It's hard. If your life is relatively easy, and I'm not saying, well, I go to work five days a week. That's, everybody does that. I'm saying, if your life is relatively easy, it might be because you're not obeying God's commands. Obeying God's commands takes faith. Believing that God will sustain you in this world. Striving for holiness and obedience to every command of God shows you believe His way is best. So how do you handle God's commands? Another question, how do you respond when your current beliefs are challenged? If you respond with knee-jerk defensiveness when your faith is challenged or your, your traditionally held beliefs are challenged, you respond with a knee-jerk reaction, well, that can't be right. Then your faith is probably in yourself or in your faith and not in God's Word. But if you've had those moments of gut-wrenching anxiety when you begin to contemplate that your traditions are probably wrong and you're going to have to make changes that's going to affect everyone around you and it makes you sick on your stomach but you're ready and willing to do it because you know God is right and you're wrong, then maybe you're thinking properly. So how do you respond when your current beliefs are challenged? And then lastly, an obvious one, how much time do you spend studying God's Word? Not reading, not going through speed phonics in your mind, black ink on white paper, studying God's Word. Studying God's Word shows that you seek a way other than your own. Studying God's Word and seeking God's will shows that you have faith that His will is best. Your faith is in His way and not yours. So these are ways that you can, the questions that you can ask to, say, to, to determine whether your faith is little how much time do you spend in prayer? How long would you pray for something? When's the last time you fasted? How do you handle God's commands? How do you respond when your beliefs are challenged? How much time do you study God's Word? If, you're, if your answer to all these questions are, well, I don't pray much, I don't pray long, I never fast, I hate God's commands, I just don't really even take into consideration any challenges to my traditions, and I don't study God's Word very much, you're probably living out a faith in yourself. So that's the first question. How do I know if my faith is little? Second question, what can we then do to foster and exercise a growing faith? The first one is obvious. Run to God's Word and learn His prescriptive will in all matters. Learning God's will... As you study God's Word, learning God's will will increase your view of God and decrease your view of yourself. When you realize how all of this fits together and works absolutely perfectly 
in reality and how all of the ideas you had really haven't worked out at all, you're going to realize how wise God is and how foolish you are and you grow in faith. And before long, it, it, the question is, why would I not trust God? I have, I have only a bad track record. God has only a good track record. Why would I not trust Him? So run to God's Word to learn His prescriptive will in all matters. Secondly, spend as much devoted time in personal prayer as you can. That is, again, setting aside time to pray. This is my prayer time. That means if you have children, husbands, you might need to say, Honey, I'll take the kids, you go pray. Wives, you might need to say, Honey, I'll take the kids, you go pray. Setting aside time to pray. As you make a concerted effort to bring your burdens to God in prayer, you will be more apt to notice His responses. When, when prayer becomes not something that just sort of happens without much thought, but you actually invest time and effort into it, you begin to notice the answers. You notice how God answers your prayers. And as you pray often, you'll grow in your love toward God. And as you love God more, you'll trust Him more. It's, it's common sense. So spend as much devoted time in personal prayer as you can. Number three, when there are desperate needs, and we don't have these very often, but there are. When there are desperate needs, assume fasting and prayer are viable options to bend God's ear. And we say that reverently, of course. But assume prayer and fasting. Assume it. Jesus said, when the bridegroom is gone, the friends of the bridegroom, my followers, will fast. So assume that's an option. That faith is strongest, which will sacrifice everything in order to exercise itself in reliance upon God. And again, like the story I, I told, don't tell me that you believe that you rely on God or that you need God to do something if you're not even willing to give up your food for it. If it's not worth your food, then why is it worth God intervening into the, the natural realm of human history to, to work? Now, when we exercise our faith and we stretch our faith, it will grow and we'll be able to notice it. And once that faith grows, Jesus says, nothing will be impossible for you. And again, that's nothing limited by the context. Nothing is impossible for those with ever-increasing, regularly exercised faith. Nothing limited by the context of Christian faith. That's not nothing in the context of people who don't believe the Bible, but just believe for the absurd. Well, nothing's impossible for those people. No, this is nothing in the context of biblical faith. I asked Christy this yesterday and she failed miserably. And I said, well, this is great that I've said this so many times and she didn't remember it and so I, I'm assuming nobody else would remember it too. Because I, I, I want to reiterate these things. What is faith? The three things that make up biblical faith. Knowledge, belief, and trust. The three things. Knowledge, belief, and trust. Biblical faith. You must know the right thing. If you have faith in the wrong thing, it's not going to work. You must know the right thing. You must know true doctrine. You must know truth. And then there's belief. You can't just know it. 
You must believe the right thing to be true. Believe true doctrine. Believe the truth. And then not only can you know it, and not only must you believe it, you must trust it. You must rest in it. You must give yourself over to the right thing. Trust in true doctrine. Trust in the truth to be the truth. Knowledge, belief, trust. That is biblical faith. So after that I could ask, where do we find the right thing? Where do we find sound doctrine? Where do we find the truth? We find it in God's Word, right? We know what God has revealed. This is biblical faith, knowing what God has revealed. Believing God's revelation to be true. And giving our whole selves over and trusting in God's revelation to be true. When you read these great prayers in the Bible, what you find is that God speaks and says, this is what I'm going to do. And then they turn around and just pray, God, yeah, do that. And then God says, your prayer's answered. Praying God's revealed will. And when we've done the work necessary to produce this threefold standard of biblical faith, the fruit of that study and understanding will be nothing short of what God Himself has already revealed to be His perfect will. We'll pray what God has already told us He wants. And when you pray and when you fast for that which God has already told you He wants, there's no doubt that it will happen. And that's how nothing is impossible. It'll happen. He's already said it's going to happen. You pray and fast for it, it will happen. Nothing is impossible. It's limited by its context. Nothing that you have discovered after the diligent study of God's revealed will in His Word. In all of this, we can rest assured that we're not looking to ourselves because we didn't write the Bible. We're having faith in God. We're trusting God and looking to Him. So as we come to the Lord's table, and you'll remember when we studied the Lord's Supper, the way that the bread and the juice are made effectual to the dispensation of God's grace and to the, our spiritual participation is through faith. Jesus says in John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Do you know that to be true? Do you believe that to be true? Do you trust in that to be true? If so, then let us examine ourselves as we come to the Lord's table. Now when we talk about praying in faith and praying according to God's revealed will and His Word, like I just have spoken, the question inevitably arises. Can we then not pray for things that God has, hasn't explicitly revealed in His Word to be His desired will? In other words, somebody is sick and I don't know that God wants them to get better. So can I pray for them to get better? My cars broke down, but I know that sometimes cars don't get fixed. Am I allowed to pray that it would be fixed? I'm unhappy with my job, but I know sometimes people just have to work at 
bad jobs. Am I allowed to pray that God would provide me a new job? Again, the question might go like this. If we pray for our personal desires in these types of scenarios without having explicit revelation from God on the issue, are we presuming upon God and actually praying prayers that are antithetical to true faith? Can we truly exercise our faith by praying these kinds of specific personal prayers that we don't know the answer to? Without giving a full exhaustive treatment of prayer, because this, this sermon is not really about prayer, but about ex- ex- expanding and growing our faith, I want to give you this one reference. Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice he says, don't be anxious, but rather, in everything, let your requests be made known to God. Make them known, and the peace of God, the opposite of anxiety, the peace of God will guard your hearts. Here Paul makes it clear that we are to bring all of our requests to God not so that we can confirm a positive response in our favor, but because having done so, we can rest knowing we've given it to the God in whom we trust and believe. And How does that give us peace? Again, because we've given it to God. We have faith in God. And we've given it into His hands and we trust that He sovereignly rules over all things and that He will do right. So, in these situations where we may not have explicit scriptural information on the subject and we don't know, sometimes people don't get better. Sometimes our cars don't get fixed. Sometimes we don't get better jobs. We can still bring our requests to Him and then rest. Not because we're, we're sure we'll have what we want, but because we're sure God will do what is right. And that is praying in faith. That is exercising faith, resting in the God who will do what is right. So let's close in prayer.